Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I created Data Mesh Radio to be a resource for Data Mesh practitioners the world over. This is a weekly summary episode where I share a bit about the upcoming week's episodes and give you an extended summary for any interviews or panels that will be released during that week. It's designed to help you decide what episodes you might want to spend the full time to listen to, as interview episodes and panels are typically more than one hour long. In general, if you were running up against any challenges with Data Mesh, I'm here to help. I started a company around doing just that, Data Mesh Understanding. So get in touch if I can be of help. Check out our free community programs and things like that as well. Weekly episode summaries and programming notes for the week of October 22nd, 2023. So I'm off to Sweden for this week for the first time and leading a big roundtable at a conference there in the Data 2030 Summit. And so what conferences, though, do you think you want me to attend next year? Get in touch and I'll start my planning early. Probably more uh, go for Europe than than U.S., but I'm kind of going to be flying all over, especially if people give me the budget too. So what's on tab for this week? On Monday, we have episode 262. Setting the Groundwork to Become Data-Driven, an interview with Corin Shlomo-Goldenberg. So a bit of a different episode. This one is Corinne's story of getting to data-capable at a company that was pretty immature with data. They aren't doing data mesh. They aren't any really where near doing that because there isn't a need. But there's a ton of things to learn about how to have good conversations with teams that haven't really thought about even producing the right data, let alone owning data or enabling data products. It's kind of the pre-steps to doing anything really complex in data, including data mesh. I think there's a lot of good learnings about how do you have these, these conversations to get somebody to actually understand why this matters and where they can actually kind of move forward. On Friday, we have uh, episode 263, which is a panel of applying site reliability Site Reliability Engineering Practices to Data. This is ed by, led by Emily Gorsinski with Amy Toby and Alex Hidalgo. And uh, Emily was, you know, a previous guest as and runs um, Data and AI for ThoughtWorks Germany. Amy's an, an old friend and she's very well known in the SRE community. And then Alex Hidalgo literally wrote the book on SLOs or service level objectives. So uh, they're all quite well-versed in this space. And this is such a key topic for me. I keep coming back to this, and a lot of people kind of roll their eyes a little bit at, at me, but I was embedded in an SRE team many moons ago, actually working with Amy. And so I see how important reliability engineering is on the operational side, and that we're just not doing a lot of this stuff on data. We need to take what the software world, and honestly, other spaces outside of just software, have been learning about reliability engineering and apply them to data. As with everything in data, it is somehow harder than than it is with just software. So what can we take and how do we start to evolve? Because trying to do reliability engineering in, in a big bang, kind of flip the switch approach is not going to work. So I'm giving everybody, you know, the permission 
to get better without being good right now and that that's totally okay. You know, there's three great experts on this and it's a very fun and lighthearted conversation. There's kind of a skeptic, an optimist, and someone in between. So you can kind of figure out which one that, that you want to be in that space. And with that, let's go ahead and head on to the extended summary for Corinne's episode as well as the panel. Quick reminder that panel extended summaries are quite dot 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 extended. So it will be, you know, bigger or longer than the extended summary for a normal episode. Extended summary for episode 262, setting the groundwork to become data-driven. Interview with Corinne Shlomo-Goldenberg. In this episode, I interviewed Corinne, who is a senior product manager of the data platform at Big Panda. It's important to note that Big Panda is not at the stage yet where data mesh makes sense, but this is a story of getting the concept, the production of data into the heads and hearts of the application development team which is a crucial aspect to doing data mesh well, whether it's done pre-data mesh or as part of the data mesh journey. Corinne started with the tale of Big Panda and how she started building out their data, ML, and analytics capabilities. When she came in, they didn't have the infrastructure or really the focus on a scalable platform for storing and analyzing their internal data. They were doing a lot of this for external clients, of this, this data work for external clients, but hadn't moved to doing it internally, which is pretty common in B2B startups, especially around data. But Big Panda wanted to do a, a data-driven transformation of their business model, so they had to change the situation around their internal data. There is always a balance for when you start collecting data at scale in Karen's mind. As, at a B2B startup, you need to ask how early should it be for the company, but the same is applicable for an early stage offering at a larger organization. Most development teams aren't tasked with dealing with creating the necessary data until far later in an offering's life cycle. But it would be nice if you could include that kind of concept and building that out, even if you're not doing that actual storing of the data, but that you build out the product in such a way that it can create the data at the start. But it definitely isn't free, so there is always a balance, and the conversations need to happen, hopefully earlier than later. Corinne's tipping point for when you should really start to press development teams on creating necessary data is when it becomes hard to answer simple how many type questions. It is also an easier conversation than a hypothetical one of like, wouldn't it be nice if we had all this data versus like, I can't answer how many people are actually using this feature. If it takes more than one day to get basic information on how your customers are using your product, that's obviously an issue that's only going to grow. It's also a pretty tangible place to start. When they started to build out the data platform, Corinne said it just made sense to start centralized. The R&D team wasn't really thinking about data. Trying to upskill them enough to take over the data work entirely was probably a bridge too far. 
Plus, if your data requirements aren't complex enough to require decentralization, decentralization is often just an extra layer of complexity. So they move to a high communication model where people can see what data work is happening even if it's controlled by the central team. They can slowly upskill the development teams to understand data instead of trying to hand over ownership prematurely. Corinne talked about working with the team to understand the product mindset to data. Start from the why. It's easy to fall into the trap of trying to do everything because it might have value. That's what happened with data lakes that became data swamps. All this information might have value. Let's store it all. Focus people on the why and you can bring them more and more into this process of working with data of helping you create the data that's necessary. Similarly, while Corinne and team didn't have a lot of pushback on getting things done, she was very cognizant of prioritization and cost benefit. Again, focusing on that, the why. What is most important and when? Why are the requirements like this? Can we cut down, you know, the cost by storing for less time or refreshing the data less often or things like that? When you say real time, what do you actually mean, etc.? Corinne has been seeing good results from having strong ownership conversations around data. While the central team still owns the data, they are partnering with the domains as the domains still need to own the concepts and the understanding of the information to properly partner with that centralized data team. While this might not work at a large scale, we've seen this in a lot of organizations trying to you know, co-own data. It becomes very complex at large scale. It's a perfectly normal and and functional at a 300-person company. You know, personal note, I keep saying this, but centralization isn't the enemy until it becomes a bottleneck. As with all global companies, Big Panda has some challenges around communication. Time zone differences and, of course, differences in focus are just two of those kind of causes. So she recommends spending a lot of time to communicate to stakeholders about what you are building and why. It's easy to assume that because you build out a data product, people will use it, but you have to work with people to ensure they actually use what you built. They understand it. So much of the issues in communication around data or just in general in business is that people, you know, have these implicit assumptions and nobody's making it explicit. Corinne pointed to the fact that many companies in the B2B space feel they aren't quote-unquote data-oriented enough. So she gave a few tips on how to become more data-oriented, but she also has empathy, and so do I, for people feeling that they aren't data-oriented enough. It's pretty common. Most B2B companies feel like they aren't as data-oriented as everyone else, but that's because they're looking at the presentations that are happening at conferences where somebody says, we're super, super data-oriented, and it's not really the case. If you go and have those one-on-one conversations, it becomes pretty clear that uh, that's a, a brave face they've been putting on it. You know, so similar to Data Mesh, where everyone believes all the other companies are far down their path, way farther than we are, it's, it's simply optics, right? Companies project a better image than the reality of their situation with data. So even if you aren't feeling like you're that data-oriented, one, you can make progress, and two, it's probably that you're not nearly as far behind people as you might expect.
Extended Summary for Episode 263, Applying Site Reliability Engineering Practices to Data, led by Emily Gorsinski with Amy Toby and Alex Hidalgo. In this episode, guest host Emily Gorsinski, head of Data and AI for ThoughtWorks Europe, as well as guest of Episode 72, facilitated a discussion with Amy Toby, Senior Principal Engineer at Equinix, and Alex Hidalgo, Principal Reliability Advocate at Noble9. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. The topic for this panel was applying reliability engineering practices to data. That is different than engineering for data reliability, which is focused on data quality specifically. Before we jump in, I also want to remind everyone these uh, extended summaries tend to go a little bit long. We've got 27 points that I'm going to have to go through. The overall concept of this is taking what we've learned from reliability engineering across disciplines, but mostly in software, so especially SRE or site reliability engineering, and bringing those learnings to data to make data, especially data production and serving, more reliable and scalable. You know, personal note, this is probably one of the most frustrating topics in data for me because it feels like it's basic foundational work, yet most organizations aren't tackling this well yet, if at all, really. The best starting point for an organization is simple awareness and starting to have reliability engineering conversations around data. And you will probably feel like you're behind after listening to this, whether it's the extended summary or the the episode, but everyone is behind on this, right? Even most orgs aren't doing SRE well, so applying these concepts to data, it's no surprise that people aren't doing that well. And I've got kind of my takeaways or my perspective after listening to this panel rather than trying to share the individual's points of view. So I've got my top eight takeaways and then I've got 19 more to follow. So number one, reliability engineering is one of the majorly overlooked aspects of what we need to bring to data, whether you're talking about data mesh or not. People are starting to really move on product thinking and to a lesser degree bringing microservices and CI/CD pr- approaches and things like that, those DevOps types approaches to data. But reliability engineering is still a somewhat distant afterthought, if at all, for many. Number two, at the end of the day, reliability engineering comes down to observability first. If you can't observe what's happening with your systems, you, you can't really start to identify issues and work on fixes. Number three, observability and data cannot only be about the data quality. That is observing what is happening with the data versus the data applications, systems, pipelines, et cetera, the stuff building your data. The data itself may seem fine, you know, no quality issues, but if your systems that are storing, moving, transforming your data are degrading, you are missing the forest for the trees. A broken pipeline that delivers 5% of the water, but it's still clean water, that, that pipe is still broken right? Even if the water passes those quality checks. Number four, relatedly and somewhat in contrast, the measures used in operational systems reliability engineering, like availability and latency are kind of the key ones, are potentially the wrong areas to focus on for reliability engineering in data. Don't copy paste those key metrics. Think about what matters when it comes to the applications, the data applications and systems as well as the actual information you are sharing. Number five, as Amy mentioned, there is too much binary thinking about data, whether it is quality, reliability, availability, et cetera. The idea of criticality is often missing from data discussions. 
And trying to measure by who screams the loudest when it comes to criticality is a really poor approach, right? As an overall organization, we need to map what data is critical and why and how people are using that. Number six, the best way to find out your SLOs or service level objectives for data-related work is to have conversations. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Not all needs are created equal. Don't take consumers at their first word as to what their needs are. Dig in and find out what will serve their needs, but limit the work to something reasonable. Remember that return on investment is what matters, not simply return. Most data work has value, but does the value justify the costs? Number seven, keep things simple. As Alex said, focus on, quote, is this doing what my users need it to do? Look to measure around what your systems need to do to serve customer needs. It's very easy to get caught up measuring the wrong things. And finally, number eight of the top takeaways, currently in many organizations, reliability engineering work is much more like archaeology than engineering, as Emily has noted. We need to focus on providing the context to those trying to ensure reliability, and that takes forethought on the systems architecture side, as well as the organizational side. Observability, data or otherwise, isn't a switch you can easily flip. It's a practice you build and get better at over time. So like I said, I've got 19 other important takeaways. Many touch on similar points, potentially from different aspects. So number one, you can make progress on reliability engineering in data just by making sure you have an instant management process around data. If you do, then look to improve it. You can iterate towards good. Everyone starts somewhere. Number two, as Emily pointed to, all your SLOs, can can all your SLOs really be covered by SLAs in data? How do you have an SLA around semantic meaning, for instance? Do we need to extend the SLO concept to really make it applicable to data to make it fully able to cover everything we need? I don't know. Um, And if you're not really familiar with SLAs and SLOs, um, Alex Hidalgo in the episode goes into a good explanation. So you'll, you'll learn kind of what's going on with that. Number three, just starting the reliability concept discussions with people in data is often difficult if people don't have operational systems or operational plane experience. In data, far too often there is either a it's right or it's wrong approach instead of how acceptable something is. Sometimes imperfect data is acceptable, and the same goes for the reliability of your systems. Number four, you can iteratively improve your observability and reliability practices. Try saying that five times fast. You can start to show value as you build more capability. Much like with anything, unless you have budget and high and full high-level support, start small. It's okay. Number five, take Alex's simple definition of reliability. Quote, is this thing doing what it's supposed to be doing? Then work to find ways to observe if your systems are actually doing what they are supposed to be doing. And only focusing on where you think things could go wrong, that's monitoring. Focus on observing. The difference between those two is a rabbit hole. You should go down yourself. But observability versus monitoring is a really important distinction to understand. Number six, relatedly, you need to really consider expected behavior when building systems. This is, of course, around data quality, but also setting your SLOs. 
What are you trying to achieve by building the data application or the data product? Number seven, as Alex said, SL, quote, SLAs really exist for lawyers and financial departments. And SLOs exist for engineers actually trying to keep things reliable. Data contracts, as they are right now, are often focusing on the SLAs instead of the SLOs. But both are important when thinking about data. SLAs do engender trust as, as a guarantee. SLOs, though, are about making sure that you're actually thinking about consumer needs and keeping things reliable, as Alex said. Number eight, potentially controversial. Don't start with former SLAs and, and formal SLAs and maybe SLOs unless your organization is mature enough to handle them. You know, as an example, people under 18, at least in many countries, aren't able to enter many legal agreements for a reason. Your maturity level matters. Potentially look to informal agreements or kind of best faith efforts as you are starting to think about SLAs and SLOs around data. Number nine, people often think about data freshness and quality metrics, but there are other important metrics like durability and availability. If you have perfect data, but no one can access it or it gets lost, what value is it? Number 10, does managing cost fall under reliability engineering? Efficient usage of resources often falls on the SRE team to some degree. How do we think about wrapping in cost management? As Emily noted, many companies have their data management on a different cloud from their applications, and that creates a lot of cost inefficiencies and maybe prevents you from doing some data work. You know, kind of similarly in number 11, cloud economics actually prevent good data usage and practices because pl cloud providers make so much of their money on data movement, especially egress, especially taking that data out of that cloud and moving it somewhere else. The economics of using best-in-class tools becomes untenable, especially, again, if those are on a separate cloud. Number 12, relatedly, many, maybe most, cloud data tooling seems to be focusing on driving usage and revenue, which kind of makes sense as, as a company, but they're focusing on these things instead of driving value taken in the greater picture, which, you know, instead of focusing on how to play together to create value for customers, each is trying to create lock-in. That isn't the way it really is in software, but we, we're tolerating kind of BS when it comes in data. This creates additional reliability and observability challenges. Number 13, in data, many organizations are still at the kind of pre-crawl phase relative to observability. Something as basic as if you create an alert, have a runbook for when the alert goes off is missing. So you have all these alerts and you're like, I don't know what to do. We need to bring maturity in, but at, but at a reasonable pace, don't try and fix everything overnight. So organizations can get to actually reliable systems and data. For a lot of, number 14, for a lot of organizations, they still treat data work as a cost center, even in data mesh to some degree. If we can't prove out the value of the data work in general, it will be much harder to get budget for something that's a little more esoteric, like reliability engineering work in data. But reliability is really crucial if you want to become data-driven rather than simply say you're data-driven. Number 15, at the end of the day, lack of reliability engineering practices in data are twofold, right? The cause of this, first, lack of awareness, and the second is, is organizational. There simply needs to be a focus 
and investment if we believe reliability engineering and data will pay off. Or maybe it's not worth it for many organizations, most organizations. Time will tell, but you can bet that the most advanced organizations that really are, you know, quote unquote, data driven, that they aren't skipping reliability engineering, right? Number 16, once we tackle the above, hopefully tooling will follow. But data tooling in general just isn't in a good spot relative to reliability engineering. It's too hard, too manual, and too expensive in general to do reliability and observability well around data systems. And that sucks. Now, personal note, this is why I'm an advisor to Masthead Data, because they're doing some really cool reliability engineering stuff in data. I think it's a really important area. Number 17, one positive note is that industry challenges such as GDPR are driving organizations to realize they need to change. It may not be happening that quickly, but the cost of keeping up with regulation in legacy systems is becoming greater by the day. We might see a bigger tipping point soon to have people kind of move off of these legacy systems. Number 18, a key point of SRE is to understand the inherent complexity and interconnectedness of our systems. There's some understanding of that which exists in data, but we generally don't look to solve for it by learning how things are interconnected beyond lineage. You know, it's really important to understand if this thing has issues, what's that going to mean for the greater organization? And we just don't do that in data. We do that on the operational plane side that we understand how, uh, you know, cascading issues happen, but we don't do that on data. And finally, number 19, good observability and reliability engineering practices have change as an inbuilt assumption. This is where monitoring often falls short. You have to constantly update your very explicit assumptions versus your understanding. Focus on understanding the needs of your users and customers and observe if the system is actually serving those needs appropriately. Hopefully it sounds like some awesome episodes for you coming up this week. As a reminder, feel free to get in touch if I might be useful in your data mesh journey, helping quite a few organizations and introducing people to each other, plus doing some roundtables. Check out datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I hope you have a great rest of your day and week. Now on to that fun, funky little outro music.